0: He's given Jesus Christ His Son, and now let the weak say, I... Well, here we go again. Matthew twenty-three. I want to tell you a, um, a story as a start to prepare you for what's about to happen. And some of y'all know this, some of y'all have heard this, some of y'all I'm sure haven't. Y'all. Years ago, my brother is 10 years older than me. Okay, so we've got a unique relationship. Um, He's a nice guy and he likes to pick on me, right? Because I'm his brother. Well, in the early stages of my life, up through my teenage years, we, I, I didn't eat fried eggs. That's just not something that I ate. And one night we were sitting around, <clears throat> and I thought, man, I'd like to have a fried egg. Well, I didn't know how fry an egg, I'd bust it or whatever. And he said, I'll make you a fried egg. Okay. Doggone if he didn't go in and he made me just one of the prettiest fried eggs you've ever seen in your life. He's like, well, you want to drink with it? I'm like, how about some milk? And I'm thinking, well, this is really nice. My brother is being really kind to me, really nice to me. And this, I'm looking at this egg, and he comes and he sets the milk down. And I take a bite of the egg, and he's like, how is that? I'm like, man, it's great. Thanks. I appreciate that. And pick up the milk to drink it, and I take a big gulp. It's buttermilk. <laughs> he did that on purpose. Cause he's an older brother, and that's what older brothers do. And I was expecting this perfectly complimentary drink to match this wonderful act of kindness that my brother had shown me, and I get a mouthful of buttermilk. Now, some of y'all like buttermilk. I don't. So I got something bad when I was expecting something good. And he laughed, of course. He thought that was incredibly funny and just walked away, and I'm in here going bleh, bleh, bleh. How about, anybody ever Seen the the jelly bean game, Bean Boozled? Anybody familiar with that? What it is it's the Jelly Belly Jelly Bean Company make this, and 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 they make jelly beans that look like jelly beans, but some of them are nasty, like they're dog food flavored, vomit flavored, dishwater flavored, grass clippings flavored, and you can't tell them apart. They look the same, and so what you do is you spin it, and you, like you get green. Well, green could be Lime, or it could be booger. I wish I was making this up. I'm. Well, let's be honest, right? But anyway, so you spin and you get green, and you pick a green jelly bean out of this big batch of jelly beans, and you don't know which one you're getting. And if you get lime, thank goodness. If you get booger, well, and we've actually seen people get sick, and I mean, they're they're terrible. There's spoiled milk, there's uh, rotten fish. I mean, it's terrible to bite into a jelly bean thinking you're going to get something sweet and you get dog food. Well, you're like, what in the world are you talking about? When you think you're going to get milk and you get buttermilk, when you think you're getting a chocolate jelly bean and you get dog food, there's a problem there, right? Well, today we're going to see this kind of problem in the next three woes that Jesus pronounces upon the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. So if you would please stand as we read the very words of God in Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 through 28. Jesus speaking. Father, these are truly serious principles that we're dealing with, truly serious words that came from the mouth of our Lord. And I pray that through them and by the power of your Spirit, you would convict us, instruct us, teach us, change us, and help us to be who you recreated us to be. So that the world would see and give glory to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you were paying attention last week, and um, I don't know if you were or not, um, I said that we were going to look at the seven woes in Matthew 23 in a 3-2-2 pattern. Well, I changed that up a little bit, okay? And we're actually going to look at three this week, which leaves us with one next week. Because we looked at three woes last week, we'll look at three this week, that leaves us one woe next week. <clears throat> so the amended pattern is three, three, one. just in case anybody was dead set on that 3-2-2 pattern. I know you came to church this morning saying he better stick to that 3-2-2 pattern. Um, anyway, <clears throat> we're going to look at three woes this week, leaving us one for next week, and then a lament the following week after that. And you know what's the week after that is? The Christmas message. So boom, here we are, right? Um, and just for reminder's sake... Uh, Here in Matthew 23, we are still in the last public message of Jesus' ministry. Here in the temple, still on Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life. And we've seen last week that He has turned His attention in His message away from the crowds and the disciples. And He's turned that attention with a laser focus upon the scribes and the Pharisees in this list of seven woes that He pronounces upon them here in Matthew 23. And so after looking at those first three last week, we start into verse 23 in the next three today. So verse 23 of chapter 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others Ooh. So this fourth woe, this proclamation of coming judgment and destruction, which is what a woe is, judgment is coming upon the scribes and Pharisees, a judgment of destruction. And in this fourth woe, Jesus turns his denunciation to look at the imbalance of what the scribes and Pharisees do and don't do. And this fourth woe starts with the familiar intro, familiar by now. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he's saying that judgment and destruction are surely coming upon these religionists who play act their outward righteousness but are not truly righteous in the eyes of God. They're hypocrites because they want to be seen by men and praised for what they do. But, Jesus says here, what they do is not in proper proportion. For, he says... You tithe mint and dill and cumin. Now, what's that mean? Well, tithes, you may be familiar with the principle, is an Old Testament principle whereby you were to give a tenth of something to God in order to honor Him with the first part of something. It's the first tenth. So if you're counting out ten dollars that you've got and you want to give a tenth of that to God, your first dollar on the table is designated to be given to God. That's the concept of the tithe. Okay, And and God does prescribe that for the Israelites in Leviticus 27. For every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So God's saying back in the law, which these scribes and Pharisees majored in, to take a tenth part of either seed or fruit and understand that that first tenth, is God's. And it's to be given as an offering which would be used to help the priests and the Levites get their living from their temple service. So it was to help prop them up and give them what they need to live. And these scribes and Pharisees would see that command in the law there in Leviticus and they would count out their seeds. All of them. Giving one out of every ten for their tithe. Now look up here. Look up here, look up here. What we have there is mint, dill, and cumin. Now imagine counting out a tenth of each of those. Whether they did it individually, by individual seeds, or by teaspoons, or whatever, I don't know. I don't know how they did it. But imagine the meticulousness of counting out a tenth of everything there. And God did say, take a tenth and give it to God. It's holy to God. But you see how these seeds get smaller and smaller? You got the mint leaf. And I don't know which ones. I guess that's cumin in the back because I think cumin's darker. I think dill would be greenish. But that's almost powder there in the back. And they work their way through so that they can purposefully say, I gave my first tenth of everything down to the smallest of the small seeds that I have. Again, can you imagine taking one out of every ten of these jokers? I mean, how much time would that take? Even if you did it by the spoonful, it would take some major time to cipher that out. And these scribes and Pharisees would have meticulously made sure that they were specifically giving one-tenth of these seeds. They would have made sure that it was precise and exact and that everybody knew that they were doing it. Now to be clear, when you look at the end of the verse back here. It was not wrong to want to tithe from your spice seeds. Jesus closes the verse which we'll get to in a minute by saying these you ought to have done. Jesus is not condemning them given their tithe. That wasn't wrong. Jesus is not against them tithing in obedience to the law of God even though the spirit of the law Is about making sure you tithe of all that you have, setting aside a tenth of your take and giving it to God before taking for yourself or selling for profit or whatever. So yes, they should tithe their mint, dill and cumin. But these scribes and Pharisees had made this seed tithing an important part of their religious life. And not only did they know it, they wanted everybody else to know it. Everyone knew how meticulous they were. And everyone knew that their mint, their dill, and their cumin seeds were tithed out down to the most minute seed. And that's the problem here. It was the, hey, hey, look how holy I am. Check out my mint, dill, and cumin tithes attitude that Jesus is condemning here. It was paraded and grandstanded and advertised so that everybody else knew what they were doing. Now... If I'm building a house for you and all I can talk about is how clean my hammer is, are you going to care? You're like, what? I'm like, check out how clean I polish it after every time I hit a nail. You're like, you're fired. I ain't got time for this, right? If I'm constantly bringing attention to how well I clean my hammer, you don't care. You're just like, build my house, fix it, Felix, right? I don't care if your hammer's clean or dirty. The point is that, I miss, that, that, if, that if I'm focused on cleaning my hammer, I'm missing the big deal in all of it. Your goal is getting your house finished. And my goal was to talk about the pros and cons of certain hammer polish brands. Again, shut up and build my house. And Jesus makes that overture here when he points out that while the scribes and the Pharisees were counting seeds, that they neglected the weightier matters of the law: justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now we see the big deal here. The big deal is not that they tie their spices. No, they tie their spices, which is not a big deal in the economy of God, but they neglect or go away from and abandon the weightier, more important matters of the law. They focus their time and energy and play acting on itty-bitty stuff and just don't focus on what the law clearly shows as more important. Things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You see, as is so often the case, the scribes and the Pharisees are so focused on the letters of the law that they miss the spirit and main intent of the law. What's more important? The weight of seeds in a balance or a poor person getting justice? And the answer is a poor person getting justice. That's easy, right? That's, that's easy to figure out. What's more important? A deal seed or an act of mercy? Human or being faithful to your spouse? It'd be funny if it weren't so sad, but that's exactly what's going on here. And the wrong choices are being made by the scribes and Pharisees. They are neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. They focus their attention on and affection on seeds instead. They would preoccupy themselves with spices and then have no time or ability to even mete out justice and mercy and faithfulness. They just didn't involve themselves in matters that required discernment in these areas. They'd walk past blind beggars on their way to announce their spice tithes in the temple. And Jesus says, these you ought to have done. They should have focused on the announcements. and They should have focused on tithing and they should have focused also on the announcements of the prophets, which we talked about here in our Hope Candle. And they should have focused their attention on those announcements from the prophets as much as or more than... Their tithing commandments. So they'd major in Leviticus 27:30 and they'd miss Micah 6:8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Or Zechariah 7:8 through 10. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts: render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. They should have listened to Leviticus and listened to Micah and Zechariah. And that's what they weren't doing. So much of God's cry in both the law and the prophets is for people to take care of other people. Justice, kindness, mercy, fairness, help for the oppressed, purity of heart toward one another. And we've seen over and over in so many of the different books of the Bible that we've went through as Providence Bible Church, that God calls us to do what? Love Him and love other people. And we've pointed out several times recently in our study of Matthew that Jesus and Paul both said that if you love God and love your neighbor, then you fulfilled the whole law. Why? Because that's the point of the whole law. The point of the whole law is not seeds. It's not spices. It's not selfishness. Yes, tithe your seeds. But not at the expense of loving God and loving others by showing justice and mercy and faithfulness. Their error is their focus. And Jesus goes on in verse 24. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So Jesus goes back to the blind guides analogy. We looked at that last week. The scribes and Pharisees considered themselves guides to the blind, but he flips that and calls them blind guides. Nobody wants a blind guide, right? Let's go on our Grand Canyon tour. I'd rather not have the blind guide. Nothing against blind people, but that's just not a job that they're suited for, right? And Jesus says these people are blind guides. And then he says they're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And it's a biting bit of humor saying that they're so focused on taking care of little things and so prone to miss the big stuff. Just what he said in that last verse. Seeds and justice, right? Herbs and mercy, tithes and faithfulness. And it's actually kind of a double wordplay too. In the law of God... The gnat was the smallest unclean animal. Guess what the largest unclean animal was? It's a camel. Jesus is just blistering them with their own law, by the way. Also, there's an Aramaic word play here because in the Aramaic that Jesus would have been speaking, the word for gnat is galma and the word for camel is gamla. So Jesus is just bringing the heat here. I mean, he's just lapping them. He's running circles around them using their law and their language and saying you're missing everything. You strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. You strain out a galma but swallow a gamla. Jesus is pretty good with the language, by the way. It's almost like he invented it or something. And this word picture perfectly illustrates their majoring in minors while missing the majors altogether. Next woe, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Now He's really drilling down into their hearts. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! This is woe 5 now. And Jesus says, Judgment and destruction are coming on them, for they clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Wow. Now again, that's quite the word picture. He's placing his holy finger on their exterior efforts to look good while their inner life is full of greed and self-indulgence. See the emphasis here. What if somebody brought you a meal in a beautiful covered dish, but when you opened it, it was nasty on the inside with mold and crud built up on the dish? You going to eat that? I ain't going to eat that. Don't y'all bring me nothing in a cruddy dish. I don't care how good it looks on the outside. How would you react? Would you compliment them on how clean the outside was? Oh, thank you very much. The outside of your dish is lovely. Or would you recoil in disgust and reject their overture of kindness because the food was useless to you? you would seriously question both their hygiene and their heart, wouldn't you? Well, Jesus is clearly refusing the posturing of the scribes and Pharisees by pointing out that they spit-shine their pretty dishes, the outside of what they look like, and it's not fooling God at all. Others might be impressed by what they see on the exterior, but God is neither impressed nor interested in a shiny veneer or a nice-looking lunchbox. No, he is inspecting the fruit of the inside, which in this case, the case of the scribes and Pharisees, is nasty and useless. And the nastiness is greed and self-indulgence. The word greed is charged with intensity in the original language. It means violent greed. The Greek word is defined as extortion, ravening, spoiling, plundering, and robbing. So it's not just wanting something, which can be greed, but it's acting on it by stealing it by deceptive means. Taking from someone and keeping it for yourself. That's what they're full of on the inside. And self-indulgence is defined as want of self-control, incontinence, intemperance. It's a lack of any ability to control oneself in this greed and extortion. And that's what Jesus says the scribes and the Pharisees' hearts are full of. Now their exterior looks squeaky clean. But inside they are profoundly selfish and scheming. So what are they supposed to do? Well, he tells them in verse 26. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Going back to their blindness, Jesus commands them to first. And Anytime you see the word first, that means it's a matter of priority. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate. Confess and repent of the inward thoughts and feelings. Your heart, your wants, your desires, these are what's out of control. These are what are sinful. Get them under control by exposing them to the light. God works from the inside to affect the outside. Please hear this. Outward efforts to do the right thing will only go so far if your inward desires are not changed or affected. We are not interested in behavior modification. We want heart change, mind change, which leads to life change. The citizens of the kingdom of heaven are not to be those who polish the outside up in order to impress or deceive those looking at them. And we can all play some pretty good games, can't we? We like to look good to others. We like for them to think we're doing good and doing the right thing, don't we? What's going on in your room by yourself at night? What's going on inside when somebody walks by with something that you wish you had? Nobody sees that except God. But we'll smile and tell them how nice it is and be burning with envy and greed and a lack of self-control in our hearts all the time. So we're not trying to convince other people by the outside hoping that everybody thinks we're okay because if they think we're okay, then we're okay, right? No, not right. Jesus says that's the wrong order. Don't focus on cleaning the outside. Don't, he says. Don't do that. Don't focus on cleaning the outside. Instead, first, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Now, do you see that? First, clean the inside of the cup and plate. The focus, the matter of primary importance, is to clean, cleanse, purify the inside of the cup and the plate, which relates to our inside person, our spirit, our soul, our feelings, our thoughts. Clean those. If you get the inside straightened out, guess what? The inside affects the outside. That's the order in the kingdom of heaven. Get your head, get your heart right, then the outer deeds and appearance will be what they should be. First, the principle and chief goal is to clean the inside. Well, can you clean your inside? You have to be cleansed on the inside. Guess who can do that? God can. And that's what, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells them over and over and over again, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which was an external righteousness, even though it looked like a perfect righteousness to those watching, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because theirs was an external righteousness. Jesus is saying you need an internal righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness not your own, to come in and invade your life and kick the self out so that the Savior can take primary place in your thoughts, in your your feelings, in your head, in your heart, in your spirit, in your soul. How do you clean the inside? You don't. God does. And first... Primarily, principally, do that. Clean the inside. And this flies in the face of what the scribes and Pharisees' outer righteousness rigmarole taught. But he's simply pointing out that they have it backwards in their blindness. They really think they've got this figured out. And Jesus says, you are blind. You don't have a clue. Focus on the inside. And the inside will take care of the outside. But they're focused on the outside and their inside is nasty. They're a big old chug of buttermilk is what they are. They're a booger jelly bean is what they are. They've got it backwards in their blindness. But he's got one more woe that we're going to look at today and then one more next week. Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all unhappy. Cleanness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, again. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. Here we go again, right? Same thing. Talking about the difference between what is seen outwardly and what is true inwardly. So he, he uses the picture of whitewashed tombs. And this would be particularly relevant to them here in this week of Passover, because of something that they would do at the time of Passover. Uh, John MacArthur explains the picture this way. Quote, On the 15th of Adar, the month of Adar, A-D-A-R, on the 15th of Adar, which is the month of March in Israel in the time of our Lord, there was a very unusual custom. It was right after the spring rains, and the rains that came washed away many things. One of the things they washed away was whitewash. You say, where was whitewash used? It was on walls, was on houses sometimes. But most specifically, the Jews used the whitewash, used to whitewash the tombs. They would whitewash those limestone caves and limestone tombs where people were buried. The more prominent people were buried that way. And the reason they did that was because in preparation of Passover, which again is what's going on here in Jesus' speech in Matthew 23... In preparation of Passover, along the roads and the hillsides where people would be traversing, they feared that people might inadvertently touch a tomb and thus be defiled. And because of the ceremonial cleansing process necessary, they could void out certain activities in the Passover season. And so to accommodate the Passover visitors who might not know where the tombs were, and also just to keep the rest of the people clear of them, they went around the city of Jerusalem with whitewash." In some cases, MacArthur goes on to say, they whitewashed the entire tomb, historians tell us. In other cases, they just painted whitewashed bones on the outside so that people wouldn't touch them lest, according to Numbers 19.16, they'd be ceremonially, ceremonially defiled. And so as you came into Jerusalem, you'd see these beautiful, clean, white tombs everywhere, dazzling in the sun. But they weren't what they appeared they weren't what they appeared to be. They were so beautiful and so pure and so white, but they were tombs, and anybody who touched them would be contaminated. And Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, That's what you are, in verse 27. End of quote. So what you would see on your march to the Passover which is the time that Jesus is speaking here in the temple during the last week of His life, you'd see these white stones everywhere, these white tombs, sticking out visually so that everybody could see them. And why did they want everybody to see them? So they would be sure to avoid them. Because touching anything dead made you unclean. And you'd be unclean for seven days. He mentioned Numbers nineteen sixteen. I want to show you that, Numbers 19, 16 through 19. This is back in the law. Whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. For the unclean, they shall take some ashes of the burnt sin offering and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. Then a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the persons who were there and on whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave." And the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. Thus, on the seventh day, he shall cleanse him, and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and at evening, he shall be clean. So, you see what's going on here? Now, imagine that you're making your annual pilgrimage up to Jerusalem for the Passover, the highest, holiest holiday in the Jewish calendar. And every year you make your pilgrimage up to Jerusalem and it's a glorious trip. And you're excited and you're anticipating the celebration. And you're thinking about the Passover lamb and you're thinking about all the words of Moses. And you're just looking forward with anticipation. And that feeling you get when you get cleansed because they sacrificed the Passover lamb for the sins of the people. And all of a sudden you stumble and you put your hand on a tomb. And you got to quarantine tomb. For seven days. You're going to miss the whole feast. You're going to miss the whole celebration. And they're talking about ashes and sprinkling you with water on day three and day seven, and you're sitting there by yourself because you don't want to contaminate anybody else. And your Passovers are ruined. Well, to help avoid that, they'd whitewash the tombs to make sure everybody could clearly see and identify these places where the dead men were and avoid them and thus avoid becoming unclean. Well, Jesus says that these scribes and Pharisees are just like that. They look all glorious and lovely on the outside. And they, it would be beautiful seeing these white, pop, pop, just different pops of white all over the valleys and the hillsides and you're looking at the white and you're like, that's beautiful. And then you think, there's dead people in there. And Jesus says, that's exactly what you scribes and Pharisees are like. You look glorious and lovely on the outside, like those white tombs. All that white sticking out and reflecting every color of the sun's light scale. Dazzlingly beautiful to look at with the eye. But inside there's nothing but pollution, death, and uncleanness. Now imagine being a scribe and a Pharisee. How upset would this make you to hear? He's telling them that they look nice, but all that they can do is make people unfit to worship God properly. And if anyone gets close enough to them, that uncleanness would spread and contaminate whoever was around it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And then he finishes what we're looking at today in verse 28 by giving an explanation of what he meant. So you also, scribes and Pharisees, outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Oh, yeah, you guys outwardly appear righteous to others when they see your whitewash. But Jesus knew and pointed out to them that on the inside, within, they were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now what? These pious, particular, powerful religious leaders signaled to everybody around them by what they said and by what they did, what they posted on social media, that they were pursuing righteousness and holiness by their religious deeds by trying to keep up and fulfill the law. Just look at all we do, they would say in to. Look at our tithes. Look at our mint, our dill, our cumin, for goodness sake. But, Jesus says, although others might see your acts and deem you righteous because of them, on the inside, like those dead men's bones, they were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And again, remember, these guys prided themselves on law-keeping And Jesus says they're play actors who are playing a religious role, but inside they are not only hypocrites, but full of lawlessness. The Greek word for lawlessness is anomia, A-N-O-M-I-A. And it means that they oppose laws. They violate the law because of their ignorance of it and their disregard for it. These scribes and Pharisees and this law of God Jesus says they appear to keep it, but in reality they are lawless. Now, again, can you imagine how offensive this was to these rule keeping, self elevating hypocrites? They had to kill him, they had no other choice. He was exposing them for who they really were, and they could not chance that. So they will. They'll plot, and in a couple days, they'll hand him over to the Romans, and the Romans will hang him on a cross. Why? Because he told them the truth about who they really were. He called them buttermilk. That leaves us one more woe for next week. I know you're like, yay, more woes. Let's do this again. But, for now, let's turn our attention to applying this blistering passage. and We'll be looking at three P's. And in these three P's, we'll be showing three contrasts. The three P's are priorities, process, and presentation. Priorities, process, and presentation. And all of these... Contain contrast that we see in our passage today. The first one is priorities. And the contrast is between majors and minors. What are your priorities? And let me say, I, I can speak for myself, and I'm pretty sure I can speak for you guys too. This is so common and so dangerous in our Christian lives. What am I talking about? We make big deals out of things that are not big deals. And then we neglect to give attention to the big deals. Like, well, what big deals are you talking about? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. We'll tell people the way that they should dress when they come to church. We'll tell people what version of the Bible they should read. And I'm not talking to people out here, y'all. I'm talking to us this morning. This is not to point a finger at anybody else because if we're pointing a finger at somebody else, we're scribes and Pharisees. Or the way that we tithe. Well, I I do. I, I put my decimal place before taxes, not after taxes. And that's important if you're going to tithe. And that's what matters. We do these things and we prescribe them as important things. We prescribe them as big deals and then we don't care about people. I'm very, very, very prone to this. Every time I walk through this door on Sunday morning, I am so concerned about getting things done and doing things the right way that I forget you guys. The show must go on. The sound must be good. The presentation must work. How are you today, Jason? I'm fine, thanks. And I just missed an opportunity to show love to my brother or sister well, i got to get this stuff done. This is a big deal. We're on Facebook, for goodness sake. And I'm talking to myself. But you know what I'm talking about, right? What are those things that you've made big deals and that you're really trying to push on other people, prescribe to other people as important must-dos if you're going to be a Christian? And they're not big deals at all. you got no scriptural backing for them. And it makes you judge and laugh at and make fun of and dislike other Christians. Majoring in minors and minoring in majors. Well, I paid my tithes. Well, guess what? It was at the expense of loving others. So you've missed the point. Jesus talked about this back in Matthew 15. You might remember this. For God commanded, Jesus says, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. What's going on here? Which is more important Helping your mom and dad when they need financial help or keeping a man-made tradition of designating some money as given to God and making sure that you give that money to God. God would say, take that money and help your folks. And that's what Jesus emphasized there in Matthew 15. You know what this takes? You know what we have to do here? Here's the application really. We have to develop some simple discernment As to what is closer to the essence of the commands of God. What is closer to the heart of God. And make our decisions based on that. Now clearly you need to know the letter of the law. Clearly you need to know what the scripture says. But then make your decisions not on what's right or wrong. We'll get to that in a second. But decipher out what's good and what's best. And it's always best to love God and love others and if it comes down to decimal points or or numbers or money or things or stuff God and people are always more important, always and we've got to develop a discernment and make our decisions based on that Warren Rearsby said it is usually the case that legalists are sticklers for details but blind to great principles whoo That's an arrow right there. Let me read it again. It is usually the case that legalists are sticklers for details, but blind to great principles. And don't be deceived. Some things are clear-cut. Some things are black and white and are easy to figure out. But a whole lot of things are much more gray. We tend to think in terms of right and wrong. But if we're just thinking in terms of right and wrong right or wrong, that's a pretty pathetic Christian life. Because the Christian life is not about being right. It's about being like Jesus. Was it right for Jesus to be killed on a Roman cross? No. It was the greatest travesty of justice, the greatest, most horrendous sin in the history of the world. And it was God's plan. That don't make much sense. That wasn't right of them to kill him. And God said it was going to happen. And God made sure it happened. So it's not about right or wrong, right and wrong. Some things are right, some things are wrong. That's, that's simple. But our life is not made up of those simple choices all the time. Listen to this. Watchman Nee tells this story. A brother in South China had a rice field in the middle of the hill. In time of drought, he used a water wheel worked by a treadmill to lift water from the irrigation stream into his field. His neighbor had two fields below his and one night made a breach in the dividing bank and drained off all his water. When the brother repaired the breach and pumped in more water, his neighbor did the same thing again. And this was repeated three or four times. So he consulted his brethren. "'I have tried to be patient and not to retaliate,' he said. "'But is it right?' After they had prayed together about it, one of them replied, If we only try to do the right thing, surely we are very poor Christians. We have to do something more than what is right. The brother was much impressed. Next morning, he pumped water for the two fields below and in the afternoon pumped water for his own field. After that, the water stayed in his field. His neighbor was so amazed at his action that he began to inquire the reason and in course of time, he too became a Christian." Was it right of the man to make the breach in his wall? Absolutely not. And if the man just wanted to be right and point to the black and white, you should not do that. He would have missed this opportunity to serve and bless his unsaved neighbor and thus see him come to Christ. But I tithe my mint, my dill, and my cumin. That's what's right. And you don't love people. Major in justice, major in mercy, major in faithfulness. Make big deals of what God makes big deals about and stop just trying to be right. Because it's not important. You want everybody just to see you doing the right thing all the time? You're missing the point of the Christian life. And you're going to miss justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Because you're majoring in minors and you're minoring in majors and your priorities are out of whack. You're like, okay, well, then I'll try harder to do better. No, no. That brings us to our second application point. First was priorities, now it's process. And the contrast here is between the outside and the inside. If I'm trying harder to do better, By doing the things on the outside that look like the right thing to do, or even the godly thing to do, my order's out of whack. This is not about gritting your teeth and trying harder to do better to do the best, better, right thing. It's not what this is about. Because then what's going on, you're a scribe or a Pharisee, and you're polishing the outside of that cup, but guess what? Inside you're still full of grossness. You look like a lime jelly bean, but guess what, booger? The way that God works and the way we see Him working in the Scriptures is from the inside out. From our spirit, out through our soul, and out through our bodies. So don't try real hard to do the right thing so that you look like you're Clean on the outside, that's not the goal. First, Jesus said, clean the inside. Don't get the order wrong. Let your inside inform and empower your outside. D.L. Moody said, if I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. And see what the Pharisees were doing, they were living for reputation, not character. They were living for the outside, not the inside. Moody said, if I work on the inside, the outside will take care of itself. And that's true. And that's scripturally true. Why? Oh, I'm missing the passage. There it is. James 4, 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's what's going on on the inside that matters. That's what we're fighting with. We're not fighting with doing the right thing. Because sometimes we just do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And inside we're going... Well, guess what? You're a hypocrite at that point. Deal with these passions. Deal with these desires. Deal with this covetousness. Deal with your passions on the inside. David said, Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That word for create means to create out of nothing. I'm not looking for God to use my dirty heart to try to do some good things through. It's like filtering your water through your sweat sock. No, thank you. I'd just soon have dirty water because you just made it dirtier. He has to create out of nothing inside of us a new heart, a clean heart. And renew a right spirit within me. It's the power. Listen to me, please. Jason, listen to me. Y'all listen to me. It is the power of the Holy Spirit working within you that changes you. And maybe you've wrestled for years and years and years and those wants and those desires aren't changing because you're trying to change them yourself and it's never going to work. It has to be the very power of God, the same power that spoke the worlds into existence that has to create in you a clean heart, create out of nothing. Create out of holiness and purity a clean heart within you. The promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, was that I'll remove the heart of stone from your, from, from your body and I'll put in you a heart of flesh. We need a heart transplant. And you say, well, did we get that at salvation? We did. And if we're not careful, we don't tend to that. We tend to the outside and we let the inside get all dirty. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit to come in and wash us clean. And change us from the inside out. Ephesians four seventeen through 24 Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But... That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And you know what you don't do here? You don't unzip your flesh and put on new flesh. The power of the Holy Spirit invades you and He renews the spirit of your mind. That's how you put on the new self. It's from the inside out. And if you're trying to just work on the outside to make yourself look good, you are like a blind Pharisee. And there's no power in it. There's only death. For I know, Paul said, that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And if you're trying to use flesh to reform flesh, all you get is dead flesh. All you get is sin. But if by the power of the Holy Spirit you are putting death the deeds of the body, then you will live, Romans 8 says. We could spend a lot more time here, but we don't have a lot more time. So we've seen priorities in the process. And finally, we look at presentation. And this is the contrast between what we appear to be and what we really are. Our presentation. Appearance. Versus R, A R E, not the letter. What we appear to be and what we really are. Now let's get back to basic Christian doctrine. And I think the most basic Christian doctrine that we need to master is that of total depravity. When you sin, does that make you a sinner? We sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. You're like, what? That's just wordplay. No, it's not. It's important. We are sinners. Apple trees produce apples because they're apple trees. It's not like you're looking and saying, well, let's see what comes out on this tree. We just never know. Some years it's pineapple. some years it's grapes, some years it's apples. We just never know. Let's roll the wheel and see what happens. No, 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 Apple trees produce Apples. Sinners produce sin. That's who we are in and of ourselves. Right? That's who we are. And if we're just trusting ourselves to try to do something about that, guess what we're doing? We're sinning. Because that's what we do as sinners. We sin. Right? Now, what about life change? What about Christianity? What's the difference? Jesus said this, speaking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, Jesus says, that I said to you, you must be born again. Why do we have to be born again? Because we're born dead. We're born sinners. We're born of the water, of the waters of birth, waters of the flesh, into sin. And no matter what we appear to be, Nice people, good people, they never hurt anybody. Guess what you are if you're you're just born of the water? You're a sinner. Just like me. Just like all of us, Scripture says. So no matter what you appear to be, you're dead in your sins and your trespasses. So Jesus says you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. Well, guess what happens when you're born of the Spirit? Am I a sinner? Yeah. Yeah. Nothing good dwells in my flesh. That is in me and my flesh because sin resides in the flesh. And I've still got this flesh. But something new has happened. I've been born of the Spirit as well. I've been born of the water and the Spirit. And now, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're like, so then the old passed away. I don't have to deal with it anymore. No, that's... That's not what this is saying. Something new has come that can overwhelm and overpower what is there, what is old. Because now sin is death. Sin leads to death. And I'm not walking in death anymore. I'm walking in life, new life. I'm a new creation. And I can walk in a false appearance and not change who I am. But I want to walk in the true appearance of what has happened in me, of what God is doing in me. Romans 6, 4. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism and a death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Good news, Christian. There's a power in you to energize you, and to give you the grace and the glory that you need to overcome sin in your life. Your sin has not been taken away. Your sins have been taken away. That's a message in and of itself. And since my sins are taken away, that new life, that new creation, which is the very life of God in me, now gives life to my mortal body so that I might overcome the sinful desires of the flesh. And I, let me tell you what, I struggle with my appearance. I struggle with how I look. I struggle with justifying the two, the flesh and the Spirit. And here's the deal. God works from the inside out so that I might walk in newness of life because of the power of the Spirit of God who resides in me. So what I appear to be is not quite yet what I really am. And we have to operate from who we are as Christians in order that we might do the things that we should do. If you don't know who you are in Christ, you will never break the cycle of sin in your life. But if you do know who Christ is, what Christ did, that Christ is coming again... You have hope. You have power that those who are not in Christ do not have. And God will change you from the inside out. So that more and more that gap between what you appear to be and what you really are is getting shorter and smaller and shorter and smaller and shorter and smaller. That's the process of sanctification. So that I operate, so that I act in who I really am, not in this sinful flesh which is trying to deceive me and kill me. The Pharisees had it backwards. I'll try harder to do better. I'll do more holy works. I'll change my life from the outside in. It'll never happen. And if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you have zero power to overcome your sin. Zero. What you have to do is to confess your sinfulness. Confess your total inability to save yourself. Your total inability to overcome your sinful flesh. Confess your sins, cry out for a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. He's the only way to God. Confess your sins, cry out for forgiveness for those sins, and receive the new life that He alone can give. Justified by the grace of God through the faith that you cry out in I am a sinner and I need a Savior, and I believe that Jesus is that Savior, that He did come that He did live a perfect life, that He did pay the penalty for my sins on the cross, that He was buried, that He was resurrected, and that He was ascended and is seated at the right hand of God now, and He is my only hope. We have to get our priorities right. We have to trust the process of God, and our presentation has to match who God is and what God has prescribed for us. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so that we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your plan is perfect. Your way is perfect. You are perfect. Help us to trust your way, your plan. Help us to walk with right priorities in the process that you have meted out so that the presentation of our lives might glorify you and love and serve other people. God, may we major in what you major in. And may we do well the minors, but may we not make them our focus. May we be full of life on the inside so that it spills over abundant life out through us onto other people for your glory and for their good. Help us, we pray, God, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. If you want a fellowship, step outside. We will love you better out there.